Hello and welcome to this episode of Elric Talks. Today I'm talking with author Stephen Hartoff about his time in the United States Merchant Marine, his latest book, The Last of the Seven, and what it feels like to ghostwrite for other authors. Stephen, your stories are usually set in or around war. What is it about the setting of war that's so appealing to you? Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Eldrick. Um, I, I, uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because my theme, and it's there on my um, website, is I, I don't write war stories. I write stories about people that happen to take place during times of war, which means that I have found in my own experience um, the sort of crucible of war makes for heightened drama in people's lives. So it isn't so much about the fighting or the conflict or anything of that nature. It's more about the fact that people under intense circumstances behave in the most interesting ways and often the most honest ways. Um, you know, when you're facing your potential destruction, you tend to be very plain about your needs, wants, your loves, your hungers, And your fears and that's probably why most of my work environmentally occurs in the atmospheres of war or espionage or international conflict or things of that nature so but there are many situations where people get pushed to their extremes why why this multinational happening of a war Uh, it, that's true, there are, but I think writers um, do best when they use their own experiences. For instance, I could devise a situation where somebody is pushed to an extreme that takes place in a corporate environment, but I don't function in a corporate environment. Mm. But I have been to a number of different wars. So, uh, I, you know, um, the old adage, write what you know. Um, right from your own experience is what I pull from. And I could write, you know, I could write a detective story and sort of do enough research to envision what it's like to be a, a detective, let's say, in New York City and devise that, that stress, that tension, that environment from research. But I tend to, maybe I'm lazy, Eldrick. Maybe it's just that I don't want to do that kind of emotional research, so I always draw from the well of my own experience, but that's what works for me. And it seems to ring bells with my readers, so I, I stick with it. So it's more of a, the, the saying of write what you know. Is this for you more of an interpretation of focusing on qualities instead of adhering to certain limitations? Yes. I mean, you know, there's a difference between um, write what you know, write what you know can be about your everyday life. I mean, I'm a writer. I don't have, you know, people aren't shooting at me every day. I mean, I could write certainly a very quiet sort of literary piece about, you know, living in a small New Jersey home and, uh, you know, having my attic office and, you know, about my lovely wife and, and that sort of thing. But I had probably my most imprinting and memorable experiences in other parts of the world where there were conflicts, uh, including Africa, Sarajevo, Lebanon, 
Afghanistan. And so those are the things that I find also the most graphically interesting, if you know what I mean. You know, like where, mm -hmm. if you're going to paint a picture, I would much rather paint a picture about southern Lebanon than I would about Teaneck, New Jersey, for example. <laughs> so that's why I keep drifting toward those things. You mentioned already you had uh, quite some experience with conflict, but maybe let's get a bigger overview over you as a person and your life so far. You were born in Connecticut. To Your father was a World War II veteran and your mother was an Austrian Jew who fled the Nazis. That is correct. My mother comes from Wien, but my Deutsch is schlecht. So, so, so we're not so, going to continue in German then? No, we're not. We just said to our audience, my mother comes from Vienna, but my German's lousy. Um, yes. So that, that was my basic uh, upbringing. And so, you know, I was sort of born into the crucible of the post-World War II experience and including the sort of the Holocaust, um, you know, the survival mentality. And so that had a great influence on me. How, how was how was the, the the family of your life in general? My family life, well, you know, my father came from my father came from a very sort of standard New Jersey American. You know, they were immigrants, but from the early 20th century. My mother had arrived here um, from outside. She lived outside Vienna in a small town called Wiesenfeld, and she had come here and survived, escaped basically with her older brother. He came first, then my mother and her parents came, and that was it. Uh, the rest of the family, you know, most of them died in the war, never made it out of Germany and Austria. And that had an influence on my, you know, worldview. But there were other things. You know, I was a typical American kid, um, you know, loved all things Americana. Um, and I was a big reader because my mother... Um, imported that to me and i was i was very young eldrick when i was reading you know the classics hemingway and then i was reading alistair mclean and you know these adventure books and those had great influences about me world war ii seemed very romantic to young particularly young boys of you know of a certain age in the in the 1960s um it was still very fresh And um, all of those things pushed me in a certain direction. I, I went to college to study theater. And uh, I, although I knew I wanted to write. And I dropped out after two years because I just, I needed some adventure. Uh, I was of um, a Hemingway fan and I firmly believed that in order to be able to be a great writer, you had to be a great adventurer. So I took off and I joined the U.S. Merchant Marine and I traveled the world for, you know, quite a long time. And then I came back to college, finished college, and then I went off to the Middle East and I was there for years. But it's quite an extreme adventure joining the U.S. Marine. Yes, it, yeah, for people, of certainly for young folks of my age who were sort of spoiled Americans, it was a very bizarre thing to do. But that, that to me was, uh, you know, I've spent my life doing bizarre things. So to me, it, it seemed like the perfect way to see the world and, um, you know, have some challenges and, and start 
putting writing experiences into my bank, which is the way I think about a lot of things. Like, for instance, I generally don't write about a place I haven't been to, which means that I'm always going to strange places. Mm. And that started when I was 19. So, so kind of a motivation. If you want to, you want to write about it, but you know you're only allowed to write about it once you've actually been there. Yes, exactly. So now, the other hand, on the other hand, um, that has tailored the tone of my, you know, my experiences in various places and and with various adventures has tailored the tone of my books. Now, if I really had decided to write a trilogy about let's say Russia, then I would have gone off and lived in Moscow for a month. But that didn't draw me. So I'm usually going off to places that fascinate me and then I wind up writing about them. It's, it's a bit of the, the, the method acting approach only translated It, to writing. I don't think I've ever heard it put more perfectly than that. You're That's welcome. exactly what it is. <laughs> that's yes, that's exactly what it is it's the method acting version of writing and you should and you should copyright that <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, just give me a minute <laughs> <laughs> call your lawyer <laughs> but um why uh, why did you join college for for theater You know, now that I think about it, I'm not sure why. I did a lot of amateur theater when I was in high school. My father was a musician. He had played with the big bands after World War II and prior to World War II. And he he took over directing uh, theater programs in Southern Connecticut. I became very enamored of that. Um, and I, I think I thought that somehow I was going to wind up in Hollywood working in film, either as an actor or a director or something like that. What really happened is the four years that I spent studying theater informed my dialogue skills mm. and my dramatic structure skills. So I took everything I learned about dramatic structure and the way people, you know, characters behave, character motivation. I took all that stuff that I learned at, at the School of Fine Arts at Boston University and I use it in my, in my narrative fiction. So... It was like getting a writing degree, but it wasn't called that. But you, with that experience in theater, you decided you're going to write fiction instead of maybe screenplays, maybe, you know, something for the theater. I did write some screenplays, but only after I had published my first novels and uh, a fellow in Hollywood asked me to come out and write screenplays for him, which I, and I said, I've never written a screenplay and he said don't worry I'll teach you because it's very simple and um, of course it isn't simple at all <laughs> but <clears throat> I got an education on the ground in Hollywood writing four or five screenplays and uh, no I didn't I was not tempted to be a playwright or a screenwriter really um, but what's, what's the I difference what's the difference for you between writing a book and writing a theater Oh, it's completely different because when you write a novel, you're not leaving anything um, to someone else's interpretation. It's not collaborative. A screenplay is collaborative. A play is collaborative. You write a screenplay or, or, a, or, a, or a play are blue 
blueprints for a director and a producer and a series of actors to interpret in whichever way they wish. So you can write a screenplay and have a certain vision about how that film should be shot, and it'll be completely different when they're done with it. That's, that has happened to me on multiple occasions. Whereas when you're done writing a book, that's pretty much your vision. What you tell the reader to see in their, you know, with their own eyes or to hear in terms of dialogue, that's what they're going to see and hear as they read your work. Now, you and I could probably agree that every reader interprets a book they're reading differently based upon their own experiences in life. Mm -hmm. But they're all pretty close. You know, like, what's your favorite book? I shouldn't say that because that that's pinning you down. But what's a favorite work of fiction that you have? I would say H.G. Wells' Tuna Bungay was quite good. Okay, there you go. H.G. Wells, wonderful writer. And you'll read it and I'll read it and we'll have slightly different experiences even though they're the same words. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Definitely, yeah. But the interpretations will be close. You know, if I get in a room, uh, and this often happens where I'm lecturing, uh, you know, I do a lot of touring and a lot of um, book appearances, you know, where people have me come and talk about my latest book and I give them a lecture about how I wrote it and I show them a, a, a cinematic trailer. I usually have a cinematic trailer um, produced for each of my novels to use for advertising. Generally, those 50 people who are sitting there have all had very similar experiences reading the novel. They will attach themselves emotionally to different aspects of it, though. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, so it's basically like, it's basically like the, the sense of control that you have when you know that you are basically the one who determines what kind of version of your idea and of your story gets out there. And even though the reader has a different interpretation you're not necessarily getting in contact with that interpretation. Correct. Correct. And while, you know, you might have 50 people sitting in front of you who've read your work and, and they're attaching themselves emotionally to different aspects of it, they've all read the same work and they would all agree on where they found it to be the most impactful or the most interesting or where they might, at what point they may have shed a tear or that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, I think that's why I didn't, I never went to screenplays and, and uh, plays as a career. Are you sometimes surprised when you hear what readers thought was the most interesting or most entertaining part of a book? Oh, yes. They always surprise me. This particular book has a, The Last of the Seven has a, a central part of it is very romantic uh, because I'm a pretty romantic person. And the central part of it, the lead character, this uh, young German Jewish uh, refugee who becomes a British commando, he's wounded and he's um, relegated to a field hospital in Sicily and falls in love with this uh, very young Sicilian girl who's an ice girl. These ice girls used to go to the hospitals and, and actually carry bowls of ice to, you know, alleviate people's um, discomfort in the heat and so forth. What I've discovered, and I love this character and the central part of this book, um, what I've discovered in my travels in the last year with this book is that men... <laughs> 
<laughs> who you'd look at them and think this guy is not a romantic, you know, beefy lumberjack type guys who read this book. They always ask me about so they always ask me about Sophia. Are we going to see Sophia again? She's my favorite character. Will you bring her back? So you never know how people are going to react, and it's always a pleasure when they come up when when you discover that they are attaching themselves to something that you weren't sure anybody would care about, but you yourself. Let's talk a little bit more about your time right after college, especially the the time where you took a little bit of a break to go on an adventure. You already said you, you decided to go with the US Marine. Was that the first idea that you had or what is one of many ideas? You know, sailing the world, uh, seafaring adventure, you know, that sort of overly romanticized concept was in my mind probably early on from reading, I don't know what, Melville, maybe, mm. Herman Melville, I have no idea. But I was not, you know, my dad was a teacher. My mom worked part-time for, for the labs at, at Yale University. They did not have a lot of money. And, you know, I wasn't a rich kid who was going to buy my way onto a yacht. So I knew that I would have to pay my way or work my way around the world. And the U.S. Merchant Marine is the civilian version of the Navy, And you can, I, I actually had connections through an uncle to get into the seafarers union and be able to board a ship and work on a ship. So that seemed the best way to do it. There wasn't anything idealistic about it. It was just get a job on board a vessel and go to sea. And how different was it from how you expected it to be? It was exactly what I expected it to be. It was, for a writer, it couldn't have been better. They put me on a World War II oiler refueler 600-foot ship that was actually run by the Navy under something called the U.S. Military Sealift Command. Which And so this ship brought jet fuel to American bases around the world to fuel fighter jets. And the crew were basically like like a bunch of pirates they were rough they were older my my immediate superior the bosun his name was leo paradise he was stout muscular uh very rough and wore an eye patch he had one eye so i mean it was like something out of a herman melville you know It, for me, it was fantastic. Other than the fact that I was seasick half the time, it was great. And at least no, no wooden legs. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that's right. Nobody had a hook or a wooden <laughs> leg, but he did have an eye patch. <laughs> and, and some of these guys were scary. I was a 19-year-old kid from you know Boston, Boston University student, and some of these guys were. You didn't know if they were going to you know throw you over the over the railing one day in a in a fit of drunken rage so it was pretty wild but would that would something like that happen often that you were among these grown rough guys and kind of scared for your life no i wasn't really scared for my life from from these guys because you know they kind of 
they were amused by the fact that this city kid was being thrown amongst them on this ship. So I was sort of like the, uh, um, you know, sort of like the the city slicker young kid mascot. And you know, they'd make fun of me, and I'd make fun of them, and so forth. They weren't really dangerous, but you know, they were when they drank hard. You had to be careful around them. Uh, they weren't nearly as dangerous as the ocean was. I had no idea how powerful the sea could be. And in the horrible storms of the North Atlantic, um, I often cursed myself for ever trying this thing. But, um, you know, I survived it in the end. But it was, <laughs> it, it was something. It was definitely what I was asking for. What did, but what did you mean with how powerful the sea was? Are we just talking about heavy storms? We had um, the 600-foot ship was, uh, since it was a an oiler tanker, all of the um, fuel was kept in these enormous um, casks made of steel that are sunken below the main deck and covered by a, a 500-pound hatch with a wheel on top of it to, to screw it closed. We had storms that were so powerful in the North Atlantic that at one point the water ripped one of those uh, steel hatches right off of the well deck. That's how strong, that's how powerful the ocean can be in a, in a, in a heavy storm. We had something called a catwalk, which was raised above the deck, and you could walk from the aft, from the rear portion of the ship, all the way to the captain's cabin out front uh, in the in the bow above the deck and we had a sister ship designed the same way and in one storm in the north atlantic the ocean ripped that catwalk off and curled it back like a butterfly tongue so the you have no idea how powerful nature can be until you're out out there in something like that that's scary that's very scary how long were you on that ship Not that long, seven months or something like that, because my objective actually was to get in the one way or the other, I wanted to get to Israel. So uh, when the ship finally got close enough in the Mediterranean to Sicily was when I terminated my employment and, and, and went over there. So but that wasn't your, seven months. But it wasn't your main motivation, right, to to get to Israel. No, um, not at the time, but I wanted it to be uh, a feature of my travels <clears throat> because I had relatives there. I desperately wanted to see the country. The country was still relatively young at the time. Um, I had read Leon Uris's Exodus twice and was fascinated by that idea. So that's what I did. When I got that close, I said, okay. You're not going to be a merchant mariner for the rest of your life. Now's the time to get off and, and go do the rest of this. And that's what I did. And so from Sicily, you just flew to flew all the way to Israel. Actually, um, I took a train to Rome from Sicily. And from there, I flew over to Israel. And and I was there visiting some relatives and, and got myself a, um, a volunteer position on a kibbutz. Uh, I'm sure your readers know what that is—a collective settlement. And I was there for two weeks when when the Yom Kippur War broke out, and th that kibbutz was right next to one of the largest air bases in the country. So we were exposed to that war 
uh, in a very dramatic way. So I stayed there throughout the next year and then went back to college and finished college. Did you stay there for your for the desire for another adventure or you know it was different uh Edric. I think that Eldrick, I think that um I felt an obligation uh to contribute my part because that war was going on and it was so hard for all the people around me. Um and we volunteers actually were, became very integral to the functioning of the of that farm settlement because so many of the men had gone off to Egypt mm -hmm. to the to the Suez Canal. So I stayed out of a sense of obligation and duty and you know of course there was the adventure and romance of it I you know I wasn't going to leave. And so I stayed through until the spring and then I went back to the states. And what did your activities as a volunteer include? Just standard, uh, you know, agricultural activities, picking a lot of oranges and a lot of grapefruit and cotton, you know, working out there. Uh, and the volunteers were from everywhere. They were from Scandinavia, Germany, Austria. One of my best friends was, was a German volunteer. Um, most of them were not Jews. They were just coming because they wanted to help the nascent state of Israel survive at the time and that was their way to contribute and it the work was hard but not you know they'd send the volunteers out at five o'clock in the morning before the sun got too hot and we'd work until lunch and then we'd have Hebrew classes in the afternoon so it, you know it wasn't summer camp but uh, it was not you know brutality in any way and then you went back to to Boston University to finish your degree was it already a bit of a, a bit of a culture shock oh yes <laughs> yes it was a total culture shock uh and you know coming back from the middle east and going back to be among all these other uh and and forgive me people out there if you're actors but to go back and, and after that and spend another two years amongst um You know, theater people who really had no idea about what was going on in the world um, was really interesting. <laughs> It's really interesting. And when it was over, when I got my degree, I went right back to Israel and joined the army, which was, you know, looking back on it was a crazy thing to do, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time. So, Is, is that following the... The desire that made you become a volunteer or was it again maybe also at least partly a desire for a bit of an adventure it was a combination of things for sure and there was some psychological element to it i mean you know i think i think a lot of people don't realize that the children of holocaust refugees or survivors often have this psychosomatic um, imprint that their ancestors were uh, were passive victims and weren't strong enough to save themselves or to fight back. And so that often manifests itself in uh, first generation of survivors in a sort of attempt to um, 
reverse that trend by being really hard. And so that was part of my motivation is that I was going to go back to Israel and, and, and become the toughest kind of Jew that there was at the time. And at the time that was an Israeli paratrooper and that's what I was going to become. And that's what I did. Now I wasn't aware of that motivation at that time, if that was a larger part of it, but I was definitely, I wanted the adventure. Um, I thought this was romantic. I knew that it would be the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And if I survived it, it would make for some great writing. So there you go. Not very pure, right? Oh, real at least. <laughs> yeah, it was real. It wasn't exactly uh, uh, an idealistic motivation. If if that's in if those in fact were my biggest drivers, but that's how I look back on it now. I mean, it, it, I guess a lot of people can identify with the idea of trying to do something to prove to themselves or the world that they're maybe stronger than they are. So, exactly. Uh, And exactly. as you said, your mother, your mother managed to, to flee the Holocaust. And at what point growing up did you, did you learn about that? Oh, I was very young because you couldn't avoid it because my, her parents, uh, Hugo and Irene, they were wonderful. Uh, they, they had been <clears throat> very large landowners in Wiesenfeld in this small town in Austria. And, As a matter of fact, their home there is a, is a um, now a monument um, sort of uh, building. They had a they had a general store in the bottom floor of a very large home, which was the centerpiece of that small town. They were very generous people. Um, the townspeople were very friendly with them, and vice versa. And they lost everything. In 1930, I guess right after Kristallnacht, and they came, finally got visas to the States, uh, and they had nothing. And um, so when I was growing up, you know, my grandparents were visiting us all the time, and so you couldn't, there was no way not to know about their past. You know, they were a couple of lovely, tough old Austrian people. They weren't old, they were in their 40s. But to me, they were old. And, uh, you know, they talked freely about their life, about their previous life. So I knew about it from the time I was aware. Eight, maybe. Seven, eight. Did you, did you feel that that affected you or influenced you as a person growing up? Maybe to become a bit of a different person than some of your classmates? Yes. I would say that that's true. Is that... I had a particular kind of background that no one else I knew had. Now, many of my father's friends were also World War II veterans. So there was that. Now, that was sort of an influence. I mean, he, when they would talk about their experiences during the war, um, that had a huge influence. Like my mother's brother, who was a couple of years older than she, three years older than she, had come first to the States. And at the age of 16, as soon as he was 18 or 19, he joined the American army and fought from Normandy to all the way to uh, Vienna uh, under George Patton, very famous American general. Mm -hmm. So, and he was very, he would talk very freely about his experiences in the war. So 
there was a confluence of influences on me. But yeah, you know, lots of my friends, they had dads who had been in World War II or, or moms who had been part of the, that war effort. But refugee kids, you know, the, the, the kids of refugees was kind of a rare thing. So yeah, um, I was different that way. You have written quite a few novels so far. When did you start writing your first? Uh, in the latter stages of my service as a paratrooper, I, I was taking notes already. You know, I, I'd come home to my place in Jerusalem or something. Uh, you only get one day a week off over there. It's just the Sabbath day. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would find a place or an open cafe or something and sit there and take notes, uh, which I knew I would use later. It wasn't until I got came back to the United States that I wrote my first novel in the early 80s, 1980s. And it was a big, big war novel. And it never got published, but I got a very fine literary agent with it. So that's... I was I was already in my late 20s when I started writing seriously. And how was that how was that writing process for you like just waiting until you get some inspiration and then just writing it down or having a strict schedule? I had a very strict schedule. Um I knew from reading about the great writers that If you wait for inspiration, you're going to write one book your entire life. You have to sit down every day and make something happen. I also I, I acquired a habit very early that I learned from Ernest Hemingway, who said that he would always stop writing um, when he knew how he was going to start the next day. In other words... If you sit down to write for four hours, which is about as much as I can write in a, in, a, in a day, four or five hours. If you sit down to write for four hours, when you're writing your last paragraph of the day, you stop sort of in the middle, knowing how you're going to continue the next day. And that way, when you sit down the next day, you're not waiting for inspiration. You're picking up exactly where you left off because you know what you want to say. And then that leads to the next piece and the next piece. But I didn't, uh, one thing I did not understand as a young novelist was the idea of outlining a book mm. first. And it wasn't until I got to my very first agent, who was a great agent, his name was Albert Zuckerman, and he ran uh, an agency called Writer's House, and he was Ken Follett's agent at the time, who read my first novel and told me that I, I wrote very well, but had no idea how to write a novel. <laughs> What did he mean with that? It was totally unstructured. It meandered around, uh, you know, that's what he meant. He said, you know, you, you didn't write this from an outline. You just wrote it off the cuff. And I said, yes, that's right. I wrote it from my head and devised the plot as I went along. And the plot was very close to my own experience. So he said to me, you know, your, your talent with words is, is fantastic, but you're your concept of, of dramatic flow and structure is, you know, amateurish. And he taught me how to outline a novel. And that's when I wrote, uh, the next thing I wrote was The Heat of Ramadan, and he sold it immediately. 
and for that you had a proper outline oh yes how how did how did you go about creating that outline um you know eldrick it's like you just ask yourself one question what happens next it's like the question i'd ask you about a film you'd just seen if you were describing the plot to me and you tell me that you know the woman goes into the bank uh to rob the safe at two o'clock in the morning and her her high-speed drill runs out of power and i'd say to you what happens next so as long as you can always answer that question you've written a book outline and, and with all the importance on the outline and on the plot how long does it take you to go from having the first idea to having a proper outline a proper plot that you now now you can work with and write it takes quite a bit of time i will have like an overall idea like i'll say to you i want to write a story about a german attorney in frankfurt who you know discovers that his wife was once an east german spy for stasi let's say mm -hmm. yeah, i you know i'm just off the yeah. top of my head now i know the basis of my story but i will also know how it's going to end you know whatever I, i'll have an idea about how that story is going to wind up in the end so that once i start writing the book i know in which direction i'm going and then i will start to lay out usually a three um act structure which comes from my theater days mm -hmm. my books are usually in three acts um because i know that structure works and then i'll go back to the beginning and say okay how are we going to open this is this attorney going to you know be home alone for the weekend and he's doing some carpentry in the house they've owned together for 30 years and he pulls up a board you know intending to insert a new wood stove and he finds a a steel box that he's never seen before and he pries it open and it's her east german stasi identification card and then we flash back to the whole, you know you know you understand what i'm saying it's yeah like, that's that's how i devise i start asking myself questions and eventually i devise the entire plot often on note cards um like index cards and i will pin them to a big whiteboard and i will stare at them and move them around and rewrite them and they will become the chapter plans for my book maybe there'll be 30 of them and then i start to write the narrative how long in general takes does it take for you to write your story out not that long um couple of weeks not that long but that's just the first and draft i assume yes and then it's oh you you mean um when you say write your story out do you mean write the book like one draft or do you mean the the out, the outline cards well i thought maybe really from the first draft to the finished written out version that you are handing oh lord that oh that that takes me that takes me sometimes two years 
Um, no, they just, the outline might take me a couple of weeks to outline it, but the actual narrative writing takes me a long time. Now, if I'm ghostwriting a book for somebody else, which I do from time to time, like a thriller, the timelines are often very tight. Like the publisher will want one every six to nine months, so I have to pull that off very quickly. But those don't have the literary quality of my own stuff. I'm not concentrating so much on the poetry of it as I am on the action. Totally different process. When did you start ghostwriting? Oh, I've been I've done ghostwriting for people for uh, maybe 15 years or so, 20 years. And I don't do it all the time, but I do it once in a while if I like the project and I like the person. Sometimes I don't. I'll like them, but the money is so good that I do it anyway. It's interesting. It's something that you that you hear not that often, um, but of course a lot of Ex a lot of authors do I, that. Yeah, you would be shocked, Eldrick, at the amount of books. If you walked into a Barnes and Noble or I don't, I don't remember what is your what is your big bookstore chain in Germany? Yeah, Hugendubel. Okay, so if you walked in there and saw the names, if if you and I walked in there together, which we should do sometime because that would be fun. Yeah. If we walked in there together and I would point to books to you and say, that man doesn't write his own books or that woman does not write her own novels, someone else does, you would be shocked. I mean, with things like celebrity uh, biographies, people assume that, right? But outside of that, I think most people still think that of course it's as, as long as the author isn't dead and the books keep coming out <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> except that except that we know that tom clancy keeps writing books <laughs> crazy guy robert, robert ludlam seems to be doing very well considering he's been dead for 20 something years <laughs> yeah. so no but there are people and they're not just celebrities i mean i know of writers who um, and I, I'm using writers in quotes, who are huge thriller authors, and the 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 very well kept secret, except in the except in the dark hallways of the publishing world, are that these people don't write their own books. Hmm. And there is a there is a sort of a community of us of of writers who do write our own books but also ghost for people and we all sort of know each other and uh you know we get together and whisper about our clients once in a while but you know by contract i can't say who i'm writing for um uh. and that's just it's just a money job uh and it can be very lucrative so we do it once in a while does that, does that sometimes make you make you think about a question your work when you think about I'm ghostwriting for somebody else and the book sells super well and then I write my own book under my own name <laughs> and fewer people care? Oh my god. Boy, did you hit that one on the head. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I a couple of weeks ago, I walk into the living room where my wife's sitting and I show her the appearance of one of these books that I wrote on in the New York Times magazine, okay? Hmm. Which would not cover The Last of the Seven. In other words, my publishers wanted the same magazine to cover my novel, and they turned their noses up and said, 
for whatever reason. <laughs> no, we're not interested. Thank you. But they've got the book that I ghost wrote all over their magazine. But isn't that, that must be so, as a ghostwriter, it must be such a tough situation to be in. Because isn't that like, isn't that so much hypocrisy in the end that you have a book that you rush because it has to be published and you write it relatively poorly as a consequence and it gets on the bestseller list and then you have your own book and you spend so much time and effort and energy in making it so much better and then you have critics who for example say well it's just not good enough oh yes it, it makes you crazy um now i've had great ghost experiences I, i write also with another fellow who he and i are very close and He's a very modest man and says to, apologizes to me all the time. Says, "Steve, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm going to get. You know, I in quotes, I'm going to get great reviews on this, and nobody's going to know you did it." And I say, "That's all right, man. You know, the check cleared. It's all good." And sure enough, starred review in Publishers Weekly, and Publishers Weekly would not review the last of the seven because now here's here's an interesting thing. The prequel to The Last of the Seven is called The Soul of the Thief, which I have to send you a copy of that because mm -hmm. I'd like to know what you think. Oh. Um, the Soul of a Thief is about a, a Mischling, a half-Jewish, half-Catholic Austrian boy who winds up in France in 1944 as the adjutant to an SS colonel. Mm -hmm. And they both fall in love with the same young French woman. Very simple plot. Based upon my great uncle, who, in fact, sort of, in fact, to, to hide from the Nazis, joined the Luftwaffe and was in the Luftwaffe for about a year and a half or a year and three months before they figured it out and sent him to a concentration camp. Obviously, he was not circumcised. but So that book, Publishers Weekly, reviewed and completely misrepresented the plot as if they hadn't really read it. Yeah. Well, maybe they haven't. <laughs> and I don't think they had. And I was furious. And I went through my publicist at, uh, at my publisher and I said, I, I, want, I want a retraction. Or they have to make a correction. They can't claim that this, is, this book is about stealing, uh, stealing Wehrmacht gold, which it wasn't. I mean, there, there is a theft in it, but it had nothing to do with that. It wasn't mm -hmm. Kelly's Heroes. So sure enough, they go back and they make the correction because they probably were afraid they might get sued. But thereafter, they were not going to review another one of my books. Uh -huh. And I knew that. But, but the, right after that, they reviewed one of my ghost projects and gave it a, <laughs> gave it a star. Uh -huh. uh, so. But I, I frankly, frankly I, I, I'm sure that you and many other readers do not understand the whole ghosting thing and I, i don't either it's sort of like being a painter and having some student do the painting for you but whatever but i mean you know a lot of the renaissance paintings were largely done by the apprentices right you had so, th so th that's true so there you go it's the same thing yeah you had like all the annoying parts the leaves on the trees and stuff that other apprentices who were eager to to paint they could do that and then the master would come in and maybe put a smile on the face or something <laughs> <laughs> and it was his painting <laughs> oh my lord and it's worth and it's worth 
and it pays because his name is scrawled on the bottom and it's the same thing yeah but with the review situation i mean if they if, if you feel like they haven't even read your book and reviewed it anyways and therefore reviewed it wrongly the question is if they how many books do they actually completely read and then are able to give a a sound review on i am 95% certain that this aspect of the publishing world just like every other business is about relationships and if You know, if I am an executive at Publishers Weekly and I have dinner once every two weeks with an executive from, let's just say, Simon and Schuster. Mm. When Simon and Schuster, a a managing editor of Simon and Schuster, sends me a book to read, I'm going to give it to one of my best reviewers and say to them, "Read it front to back." And that is a that is a a subtle way of saying and you better give it a good review mm. then if Hartov's book shows up from my publisher and they don't have a real heavy relationship with publishers weekly like i have had publishers who had good relationships with publishers weekly and they always paid attention to my books and read them carefully but if your publisher does not have that kind of relationship with the reviews with the review magazines um you may or may not get reviewed or you may or may not get a good review or you might get an honest one or you may not i get great reviews from library journal um and often from kirkus and i've had fabulous reviews from publishers weekly they gave me the best first novelist review that i've ever seen for the heat of ramadan um, and they gave me a starred review But you know, it depends on who's working there and what their politics are and what they like to read. I and mean, politics has become a huge part of this now, and and you know, social culture and you know what 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 part of the socio-economic spectrum are you as a writer? Should we review you? Are you privileged? Are you not privileged? You know, it's mm. not it's not about art anymore. It's about politics. So, but the best way to avoid all of this all this this big area of reviews is to just get to just get a sense of or a little taste of the books and then to make up your own mind about whether or not you like it absolutely and fitting to that you also brought us a, a little passage from your book uh, the last of the seven Yes, I will be happy to read you in my not necessarily four years of theater talent. So you'll forgive me because I am now just a writer, but I'll read you the opening section of The Last of the Seven. How's that? That's great. Chapter One, North Africa, Spring 1943. In the Sahara, the sun could make a man bleed. It was hard to believe at first, especially if you'd ever trekked a frigid winter landscape somewhere. Boots slogging through alpine snow, limbs shivering and aching bone deep. It was a challenge to imagine it, such a murderous sun. 
When December memory recalled teeth chattering like a Morse code key, toes and fingers numbed and raw, eyebrows stiff with frost till all at once that blessed star emerged from charcoal clouds to save the day. The sun was a holy thing then, the breath of God on your frozen face. Ah, but in the vastness of that empty desert, when spring fell prey to cruel summer, when the cloudless sky was nothing but a silver mirror, the sand and iron griddle, and there was not a tree or cave or cactus to throw a shadow sliver, nowhere to run from the sun. It was then that heaven's jewel became a hunting thing, its furnace eye unblinking, merciless and pounding. And I won't read any more because you have to read the book, pick up the book and find out who's who's walking in that horrible desert. And the book is out already. And where can, where can the people get that? Well, here in the States, Canada, Australia, uh, the UK, it's in bookstores and in all of the major outlets, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, you know, all those places. It's easy to get either in Kindle or hardcover or audiobook. By the way, there's a great audio version read by a fellow named Raphael Corkhill, who's a very well-known British actor and is a much better narrator than I am. So I'd highly recommend that. It, you, you know, you can just download that or uh, go to Amazon and uh, pick up a copy. And where can the listeners find you on the internet? Just go to my website, www.stephenhartov, H-A-R-T-O-V, stephenhartov.com. And then look me up on Twitter or Instagram, uh, Facebook. Just do a search on my name and I'll pop right up there. Stephen, we're coming to an end here. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for your time. It went... Buy like a flash, Eldrick. I hope we'll do it again sometime. I really appreciate it. And to find somebody who's so astute in his um, enthusiasm for literature is still a great thing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Eldrick Talks. You can find all the links to the socials and the books that we talked about in this episode's description. New episodes are coming out every Friday. For more information about upcoming episodes, head over to eldrick-talks.com. That's eldrick-talks.com for more information about upcoming episodes. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.